sometimes archaically so, cross-cultural relics, often intentional, sometimes accidental, either gruesome or eerily resplendent. They're usually dry, fragile, and always kind of gross. I'm of course talking about mummies, and on today's episode, another in the Halloween season lineup, you're getting two mummy stories. Two separate continents, two separate millennia, and two separate species. First, we'll be traveling to Mexico, where a collection of 111 mummies came about completely by accident. It's a sad story, and the bodies displayed in El Museo de los Momias, the Mummies Museum in Guanajuato, Mexico, tell a history that is absolutely chilling. Then we head to Egypt and meet Bastet, Egyptian goddess, half-woman, half-cat, because in 1888, in Beni Hassan, about 300 kilometers, or 186 miles from Cairo, a farmer who was digging a well uncovered one of the largest stashes of mummified cats ever found. And maybe an ancient, illegal crime ring of cat-murdering entrepreneurs. Seriously. Let's discover the mummies of Guanajuato, meet a goddess, and find out what happened to a whole lot of cats 4,000 years ago. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Guanajuato, Mexico, as it is today, was established in 1679, mainly due to rapid settlement by the Spanish upon the discovery of some lucrative silver mines. These mines are still among the richest in the world today. But people have been living in what is now Guanajuato for much longer. A large population of maize-growing peoples lived there between 500 and 200 BCE, and it's believed these people eventually evolved into the pyramid-building Teotihuacan culture. Teotihuacan, at its peak in 600 CE, had up to 200,000 inhabitants, making it one of the largest urban centers in the ancient world. In about 900 CE, Teotihuacan was abandoned, and very little is known about the people who lived there, or why they left. Archaeologists discovered that many of the buildings and artworks at Teotihuacan were burned and destroyed, suggesting that its abandonment was not a peaceful one. Theories range from the poor rising up against a ruling elite, or the possible invasion from an outside culture. After the violence died down, the people most likely integrated with neighboring cultures or returned to their ancestral homelands. But much of Teotihuacan remains a mystery. Fast forward over a thousand years, and we have Guanajuato, the birthplace of famous artist Diego Rivera, husband to the brilliant artist Frida Kahlo. This city is also famous for its many festivals held each year. But in 1833, something truly awful happened to the people of Guanajuato. A cholera outbreak devastated the city. Bodies were buried quickly in an attempt to halt the spread of the disease, which was incredibly endemic. Cholera is a particularly nasty bacterium, 
It's a single-celled microscopic organism that works its way into the small intestine, causing an infection that dehydrates the victim so rapidly and severely that death can occur in a matter of hours. And it's a brutal death. Fever, vomiting, and severe diarrhea can cause someone to lose almost six and a half gallons, or 24 liters of fluid a day. It spreads through contaminated water and food and quickly, causing mass outbreaks. Today, the World Health Organization estimates there are between 1.3 to 4 million cases of cholera infection each year, causing 21,000 to 143,000 deaths. Not that long ago, that death count was in the millions. So people were dying in Guanajuato and fast, filling up the graveyards. And by 1865, a local graveyard tax had been implemented, which took its toll on the poor. If a family wished for their deceased loved one to remain buried, they had to pay or the body of their loved one would be evicted from its grave. If a family was unable to pay the tax for three years in a row, their relative was disinterred. According to the Vintage News, 90% of the cholera victims from 1833 were evicted from their own graves because their families were too poor to pay the fee to keep them buried. This tax stayed implemented until 1958. But something strange happened in 1865. When workers opened the grave of Dr. Remigio Leroy, expecting to find another decayed body stripped of flesh and reduced to bone, they found a mummy instead. Then they began to find more of them. Around 2% of the bodies they disinterred had been naturally mummified. The mummy count by the time the grave tax was outlawed in 1958 was 111. Normally, when someone dies, the bacteria on, in, and around the person immediately begins to break their body down. If the bacteria is allowed to naturally decompose the body, all you really have left is the skeleton in a few months to a few years, depending on how a body is buried. Embalming slows the process of composition down, as does being buried six feet under, whether unembalmed or not, in a casket. For years, people were uncertain as to how these 111 people had been naturally mummified. Natural mummification does happen more often than you'd think, usually because a body has dried out in a naturally arid region. This is how the first ancient Egyptians began mummification before they mastered it in subsequent millennia. They would leave the body in a dry area and just let the desert do its work. Natural mummies can also occur due to the body freezing after death. This happened with the famous Utzi, the Iceman, who was found frozen in the Alps 5,000 years after he was murdered there. Bodies placed in peat bogs naturally mummify too, as the bog acids that have about the same pH levels as vinegar pickle the body when the acids saturate the tissues before decay can set in. All over Northern Europe, there have been bog body discoveries. The oldest comes from Denmark and dates to 8,000 BCE. Most of the bog bodies met a violent end, leading archaeologists to determine that they were either criminals strangled or even beheaded, then thrown into bogs, 
or they were possibly victims of human sacrifice. Forensic anthropologists that examined the Guanajuato mummies in 2007 determined that their mummification happened in part because the environment in Guanajuato allows this to occur naturally. The bodies that were buried in above-ground cement crypts had released moisture almost immediately into the dry air and their cement or wooden coffins. This rapidly halted their decomposition process. The anthropologists also found signs of partial embalming on some of the mummies, including organ removal, which would have slowed decomposition even further. I'll have a link to this and everything else in this episode in the show notes in case you want to check any of it out later. It's pretty interesting stuff. When the Guanajuato cemetery workers noticed how well-preserved these bodies were, they began storing them in an ossuary in case their families could eventually come up with enough money to have them reinterred. By 1894, the workers had collected enough bodies to begin charging admission as a museum and started allowing curious patrons to view the bodies. This seems so sad to me. Families who couldn't afford to have their loved ones buried received no monetary recompense for their relatives being on display. The only way they would have been able to visit the grave of a loved one would have been to pay the few extra pesos for admission and see grandpa or grandma lined up next to the other disinterred bodies. Although the grave tax was abolished in 1958, the museum continues to operate, and it's a huge tourist attraction today, with most of the original mummies still in possession of the museum. Some people call them the screaming mummies of Guanajuato because their faces are distorted and twisted with gaunt expressions, and many are still wearing the tattered rags they were buried in. These truly horrific facial expressions are the result of natural post-mortem processes, but it was believed for years that their grimaces were due to having been buried alive. It was believed that, in their haste to bury cholera victims to prevent the spreading of disease, the living had inadvertently buried people alive. One mummy in particular that was said to have fallen victim to this dreadful fate was Ignacia Aguilar. She had reportedly suffered from an illness that made it seem as if her heart had stopped beating on several occasions. It's said that on one of these occasions, her heart had appeared to stop beating for a full day. Believing her to be dead, her family had her buried. When she was disinterred because her family couldn't afford the graveyard tax, her body was found face down as if she had tried pushing up on her coffin lid with her back to escape. It's said she had bit her arm and that blood was found in her mouth. The anthropologists that examined her in 2007 were incredulous, but couldn't make any final determination with only their cursory examination. Perhaps the saddest addition to the collection is a fetus from a pregnant woman who fell victim to the cholera outbreak. This baby is the world's smallest known mummy, no bigger than a loaf of bread. Famous American author Ray Bradbury visited the museum and immediately afterwards wrote his short story, The Next in Line. It's a fictitious tale of a husband and wife who go visit the mummies of Guanajuato. The woman becomes so afraid and paranoid that the mummies are coming for her, haunting her, 
that she becomes convinced she's going to die. She makes her husband promise not to leave her there if she does, and he agrees, finding his wife's paranoia irksome and childish, almost humorous. But at the end of the story, as the husband is driving back home, the car seat next to him is empty. Bradbury later wrote of his experience with the mummies, saying, quote, The experience so wounded and terrified me, I could hardly wait to flee Mexico. I had nightmares about dying and having to remain in the halls of the dead with those propped and wired bodies. In order to purge my terror, instantly I wrote the next in line, one of the few times that an experience yielded results almost on the spot. Unquote. The story of the Guanajuato mummies is truly a heartbreaking one, and when I look at the pictures of their twisted faces and hands reposed as if in prayer, or arms crossed as if clutching themselves for all eternity, I can't help but feel a sense of sadness for who they had been, how they had died, and the way they had come to be on display. And if you decide to go see these mummies, and you can today, or look at the many pictures available on the internet, be warned, they just might haunt you like they've haunted so many before. Now, I promised you two mummy stories today, so let's head east, about 8,000 miles or 12,000 kilometers from Guanajuato, and 4,000 years. Let's go to Egypt. Humans love cats, or at least a lot of us do, and they've been living alongside of us for a very long time. The first evidence we have of cat and human companionship, or at least association, comes from a grave in Cyprus where 9,500 years ago, a human was buried with a young wildcat. By 4,000 years ago, or even a bit earlier, we know cats were already well-loved household pets in Egypt, so their domestication has to have occurred even earlier, sometime between Egypt and that burial in Cyprus. In China, archaeologists have found what are probably domesticated cat remains 5,300 years old. One of the cats they found had lived well into old age, and its remains indicated that it received more nutrition from millet than it did from rodents, which may mean that humans were caring for it and feeding this cat, allowing it to live longer than it would have if left on its own. There's surprisingly a lot of hot debate about how and why cats have become one of the world's most popular pets, but it's theorized that our relationship with them may have started with farming, when rodents would have naturally been drawn to our grain stores, cats would have hunted these rodents and we would have recognized how helpful that was, and so encouraged them to keep doing so. The relationship was mutually beneficial. In ancient Egypt, one of the reasons cats were held in such high esteem was because they not only killed rodents, but venomous snakes and scorpions too. Because in ancient Egypt, there was no such thing as antivenom. Cats were sacred in ancient Egypt and revered, 
They were seen as carriers of the divine essence of the Egyptian goddess Bastet, a cat-headed goddess representing fertility, music, dance, the secrets of women, and protection. It's a common misnomer that Egyptians worshipped cats, at least according to Egyptologist Dr. Melinda Hardwick. Bastet was worshipped very extensively, and cats were venerated because she was, and because of their utility. The goddess Bastet was hugely popular. Her main cult was centered in the city of Bubastis, and the festival held there in her honor each year was one of the largest in ancient Egypt, with possibly hundreds of thousands of people attending. She was second in popularity only to the goddess Isis, and was revered in Greece, too, becoming associated with the goddess Artemis. And this popularity even spread to Rome, where she remained a favorite until the rise of Christianity. By the time of the Pyramid Text, about 2400 to 2300 BCE, she was associated with the king of Egypt. She was believed to be his protector as he grew. A bit later, around 2100 BCE, she had also become a protector of the dead. Bastet evolved as a deity over the millennia. She was first represented with the head of a lion and a more aggressive persona with a reputation as a fierce protector and savage avenger. The goddess Sekhmet eventually superseded her in this role as protecting warrior goddess, and so Bastet's image softened over time into more of a daily companion and household deity. Both men and women would wear cat charms and amulets to protect the home and bring about good luck during childbirth. Many Egyptians owned cats, and having one as a pet was a sign of status and devotion. Herodotus, the famous Greek historian, wrote that when a pet cat died, the owner would shave off their eyebrows as a sign of grief, and that if a house caught on fire, the first priority would be the safe rescue of any cats inside. Modern scholars take these accounts with a grain of salt, because even in his own day, Herodotus was known to exaggerate and even propagate some fake news. But there's no doubt that cats were held in high esteem. Because of their divine association with Bastet, harming a cat was a capital offense, and the penalty for killing one was death, even if the killing of a cat had been accidental. Even so, cat mummies were given as offerings to Bastet, and pilgrims would buy them on their way to Bastet's temple to present them to the goddess. During her yearly festival, mummified cats were brought to Bastet's temple in huge numbers. Archaeologists have found a lot, I mean a lot, of cat mummies in Egypt. This is in part because destroying or discarding a cat mummy would have been seen as an affront to Bastet. This meant that many of the cat mummies were stored away in pre-existing burial chambers and secondary catacombs. During the excavation of her temple in Bubastis in 1887 and 1889, 300,000 mummified cats were uncovered at this site alone. So if it was illegal to kill a cat, where were all of these cat mummies coming from? Ritual sacrifice is probably the answer to this question. This was most likely done at temples by priests who had a stock of cats on hand specifically for this purpose. 
But because so many cats were needed as offerings to Bostet, there were most likely entrepreneurs who gladly came out of the woodwork to provide priests and pilgrims and tourists with mummified cats. They did this by breeding cats and killing them just before they reached full maturity. Kittens apparently made better mummies. The work of these dark entrepreneurs is probably what our farmer in Beni Hassan stumbled upon by accident when he was digging for a well in 1888. That day, he found a cache of 80,000 mummified cats and kittens that dated back 4,000 years. In 1888, Bastet no longer had a hold on the population, and once word got out about the mummy stash, there was a scrambling of people who were grabbing as many as they could to sell to anyone who would buy them. Tomb robbers quickly appeared as well, digging around the area to find trinkets to sell on the black market. This is still a huge problem today on a massive scale, and not just in Egypt. The corporate giant Hobby Lobby was fined $3 million in 2017 for illegally smuggling 5,548 ancient artifacts from Iraq. According to the Department of Justice, the dealers working with Hobby Lobby packed the illegal items in crates falsely labeled as ceramics and samples. The company was fined, and the artifacts were thankfully all repatriated to Iraq. But the mummified cats in 1888 were not so lucky. An eyewitness account by William Martin Conway, the Baron of Allington, described the plundering of the site, saying the area became strewn with mummy cloth and cat bones as people were unraveling them, hoping to find gold amulets inside. Children carted off what mummies they could to sell for a pittance to anyone who would buy. Apparently, the unwrapped cat mummies made for a smelly scene, and the wind carried the stench and the bits of fur quite a ways. The remains of the cats, which were estimated to be about 20 tons, were sold by Egyptian farmers to an entrepreneurial British man who had them shipped to Liverpool, where he sold them as fertilizer. Even 4,000 years later, these cats couldn't get away from the hungry appetites of the business world. It was a sad end to the offerings of a once avidly revered goddess. According to an article from the Vintage News, as much as nine tons of the remaining intact cat mummies were also transported to Liverpool, where they were sold at two different auctions organized by the Gordon & Company Auction House. Reportedly, the auctioneer used a cat skull as his auction hammer, which, if actually true, seems a bit in bad taste. Most of the cats sold at auction were bought by Egyptologists, private collectors, and museum representatives. One ton of cat remains could have been purchased for 17 pounds. That's about 2,000 pounds today. X-ray analysis done on some of the remaining Beni Hassan cats showed that most of them were less than a year old when they were killed, and most likely met their demise with a powerful blow to the head. So we don't know for sure if these were sacrifices done ritually at a temple, or if they were the work done by some ancient, underhanded business people. Either way, it was a bad day for cats. Whoa. 
That does it for this week's History Bite. Next week, you'll get one more bonus episode before I go back to the normal bi-weekly schedule. It will for sure be another History Bite, because the final episode in the Shackleton series has had to wait while I've been doing all of these extra episodes. I hope you enjoyed hearing about all this mummy business. I certainly had fun researching it and bringing it to you. If you like the show, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This helps so much in making the show more visible. If you'd like to donate, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcasts. Patrons get access to the members-only feed and occasional bonus episodes. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for giving me and this show a chance. I cannot begin to describe how much I appreciate your listening. My gratitude level has gone all the way up to 11. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, my dear wandering warriors of mummies, ancient cat wisdom, and all-around awesomeness, go make some history.